0: In 2019, an association called the National Trust for Canada estimated that within the next 10 years, 27,000 churches in Canada would close its doors. That's 250 churches a year for the next 10 years. And that was before COVID hit. That was before everything was accelerated. What makes things harder is that the vast majority of these churches are in really small rural communities, which means that the very fabric of life is, is changed. I was up in Perry Sound just a, a week or so ago, and I can tell you that between where my parents live and now where uh, they grew up, my mom grew up, there's only two churches... And they share a service. Now, again, I look at that and I look at the community and I think faith is gone. The church was a visible symbol, but what's happened to the faith of these people that were for generations followers of Christ? Well, the most common reason given by the sociologists is what? It's increased secularization. That is, society's wholesale moving away of basic religious principles and values and institutions. It's the ongoing modernization of the world, the technical advances, the rationalism that's coming into every aspect of our life, and is saying that religion has no role to play in your life anymore. But is it simply a question that society has lost its spiritual roots, has become more secular? Or can we make a case that the church is at fault? That in leaving behind the, the very biblical principles that for decades it had coveted and held onto, the church has lost its way. Well, I, I personally believe it's the latter. The question we need to ask is Is the gospel less effective today than it was 2,000 years ago? Is it less effective in transforming lives? The answer's got to be no. And if that's the case, then the problem lies with us. The problem is that we have lost a spiritual vitality, a proper perspective of who we are to be. And because of that, we've lost relevance in this world. The gospel is going forth in the book of Acts against socialism and all of these other things, and, and people are coming to faith in Christ Is it any different than today? No. For a brief time, I actually served in a church that had lost its sense of vision and vitality. I can tell you there's nothing harder than to serve a church to love a people who go through the motions of being a church. There's a sense of forlornness about it a feeling of desperation desolation that you just can't get rid of gone were the days when the pews were jam-packed with people and the youth ministry the teens were busting at the scene Uh, on a friday night they could have a couple hundred kids from the community out And, and there wasn't any now when people served selflessly but there's no one coming up behind that has that same passion, that same understanding. They they were a shell of their former self. They couldn't pay all of their bills. They couldn't keep the building maintained properly. They couldn't even find a pianist on a regular basis to lead in worship. We had to sing a cappella. Now, that's nothing wrong with singing a cappella, but it gives you an idea of where the church had gone. It was dying spiritually, and it was dying physically, really. In the first couple months I was there, I did six funerals. Six. That's a lot. The only thing worse about being a pastor in a dying church is being a pastor who has to actually close the doors of the church to sign over the deed to perhaps a a non-Christian identity, a business, or someone who's going to, to use it for something else, and to know that the light of the gospel has gone out of that community. Now, since then, I've come to a sober understanding that, you know what, there are times when a church must be allowed to die. As hard as that may sound, There are times when, to use the the words of the book of Revelation, God removes the lampstand and it needs to pass away. Now, that's not us this morning. Let me just start by saying that's not us. However, next year, we have our 60th year anniversary There is aspects of who we are as a mature church that is almost on the knife's edge. We need to understand that we are not immune from the possibility of spiritual work. We look around us, we see kids, we see it packed this morning. But you know what? We're only ever one generation from being useless, from being lost. To falling into spiritual ruin. And, and, and let me put it this way: the kids that are upstairs in Iwana right now, we would want to pass this church, uh, this faith on to them. But that means that the very vibrancy of who we are now our earnestness, our diligence to grasp hold of the biblical principles. God says, this is what a church is supposed to look like in the world, to be light and salt. If we don't understand that, it's only one generation, and our kids will inherit a spiritually bankrupt church. We're not immune to spiritual decline. And we dare not become complacent that it can never happen to us. This brings, I think, the importance of the book of Acts down to a new level to us. It it changes it from simply being an accurate historical account of how the gospel advanced throughout the ancient world to being an inspired guidebook of how the church is to engage an unbelieving world with the gospel. A testimony to God's purposes of redemption in a dead and dying world. And an authoritative witness of how each one of us is to be involved in fulfilling that great commandment of making disciples of all nations. That's God's calling for the church. Now over the year, approximately a year, a little over a year now, we've been preaching through the book of Acts with that very purpose. Not saying that this is a history. It's a history. But we want to, to shake loose the spiritual truths, to take our Bibles and ask the Lord to, to spill out what we need to understand, knowing that in here is an inspired record of what God does with people who are on fire for Him and His purposes. Now, this morning we come to the end of that. Acts 28. The end of Luke's account. And we remember all the way back in chapter 2, it starts with the promise of the Holy Spirit coming upon the people of God. And Christ says, you're going to be my testimony, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the very ends of the earth. You are going to be my witnesses of the power of the resurrection and the truth of the gospel. And it starts in Jerusalem. And like ripples on a pond, it fans out to the ends of the earth. As far back as Acts chapter 19, God gives Paul a very specific personal promise, doesn't he? That you're going to go to Rome. Notwithstanding everything else that's going on around you, have the confidence to know that you're going to be going to Rome and you're going to be standing before Caesar one day. And so from chapter 19 on, we've seen trial after trial after trial, and he's clung to that promise There's been several riots. There's been four court cases against him. This arduous uh, journey across the sea being shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. And all of these things, he's clung to that promise that God is taking him to Rome. Through it all, we've been challenged time and time and time again to see that Luke is actually presenting for us A Paul who is to be not simply an apostle of the past, but an example of what a man or a woman of God can do when they're on fire for God. A man or a woman of God whose testimony is of the Lord, whose life is set on fulfilling that great commandment to make disciples of all nations. He is a prototype for us. Yes, Paul is unique. He's an apostle. There's something none of us can claim. But we, like him, have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. We, like him, have been indwelt and are now empowered by the Holy Spirit. We, like him, are under the same commandment to make disciples of all nations. And so we, like him, ought to be single-minded in our passions and persistently gospel focused want to know what it means to faithfully proclaim the gospel to make disciples look to paul want to know how to engage the world around us and all of the isms and make disciples to contextualize the gospel look to paul want to know how to, to, to love people and, and what it means to get right down and to, to do the Bible studies with them, to see the power of God being revealed simply through the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, we can look to Paul. So again this morning, we come and the first thing we need to look at is this example of Paul. And we see an indomitable spirit Somebody who is in the face of any challenges and any questions, any contingencies, is faithful and true to God. It's a spirit that is impossible to subdue or to defeat. A spirit that does not wither, that does not falter in the face of personal challenge and even persecution. And so, as we look at the life of Paul leading up right into this final chapter, Acts 28, there are three things that we need to see of this indomitable spirit of Paul. And the first one is that he was a man of great vision. What was Paul's vision? It was nothing less than the evangelization of the whole earth. It was a vision of Revelation 7, a great multitude of every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In regards or in terms of the Jewish people themselves to which he belonged, in Romans 9, 3, he says what? for i wish that i myself were accursed and cut off from christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh and what about the gentiles well romans 15:3 he says i make it my ambition to preach the gospel where christ has not yet been proclaimed So he has this wonderful grand vision, this coming together of Jews and Gentiles and literally every tongue, tribe, and nation from Revelation 7. Everybody is reconciled into one family, into Christ. One body, one church. And within that wonderful, mind-boggling vision that captures his heart and his soul and his passion that leads him on... We also see a more pointed vision that actually defines how he ministers on a daily basis, depending on where he is. 1 Corinthians 9 tells us what? I have become all things to all men, that some might be saved. So whether he was preaching to the Jerusalem council or healing a sick person, or simply being a prisoner on a ship. Paul's desire was to see Christ glorified in the lives of those with whom he come in contact with. And I can tell you, I can tell you the man or the woman of God who has a vision like that, who allows a grand vision to seep down into who they are, to trickle down in a way that it changes the way they live, the way they love, the way they serve, the way they work. They are a powerful tool in the hand of God. A grand vision that finds a a focal point in where they are and how to serve, how to love through Jesus Christ. And so a question we need to be asking ourselves is do we truly desire that all people be reconciled i i think we can probably say yeah pastor but is that simply in a grandiose way or do we think in the here and now you go to school tomorrow and that young muslim gentleman who will be sitting across the room for you do you truly have a vision that he should know jesus christ as his lord and savior When you go to work, and many of us may not necessarily actually be going into a physical location, but more and more, and you're going to be meeting these people who you haven't seen in quite a while, is your desire that they would know Christ? This grand vision, yes, one day I will be with this heavenly crowd, this one family worshiping God forevermore, but does it have its focal point here and now to say, I desire that he or she know Jesus Christ personally? this is where an unconquerable unquenchable spirit starts a great vision for the purpose of god's redemption the second aspect of paul's indomitable spirit is that he was a man of unwavering faith in god now you like me (laughs) we all renege we all default on our promises way too often. In fact, we probably make more promises glibly than we ever think that we're ever going to to fulfill. But God never reneges, never defaults. And, And Paul took great strength in that. No matter what was happening around him, God was taking him to Rome. God had promised that he would testify, even before Caesar himself, of the resurrection I have seen Jesus Christ resurrected. I have seen the power of the gospel, not only in my lives, but in the lives of Jews and Gentiles from all different parts of the kingdom. And he took that as a promise and he held on to it tightly. Even when they're shipwrecked, the, the, the waves are crashing on around them, the sea is tossing them like a cork. And what does he say to those who are in the ship? I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this ship, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of of God, of whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Even more, when Paul gets to Rome, I don't know what his expectations were, But mine, I'm probably thinking, this is exactly where God has been promising for months, a couple years now. He must have this great and grandiose ministry. But as he gets there, things are probably not unfolding as he would have expected. But his faith is, is undaunted. It still is set firmly on Christ. He's not preaching necessarily to the crowds of thousands. He's not locking horns with the philosophers or the intellectuals like he did on Mars Hill with the great freedom and all of them great minds of the day were there. Instead, he's doing what? He's under house arrest and chained to a guard. Through thick and thin, Paul's faith never wavered. It was set on the sovereign purposes of a sovereign God. God was in control. God had made a promise. And even if everything else around him was going on at right angles to what he thought, God would lead. And that really gets us to a major issue we need to think about in terms of of an unwavering faith. Because there are many times in our life we will experience that things are not happening the way we thought they should be happening. They're they're not developing naturally the way they should have. Things just don't work out or materialize as we had thought. Perhaps you have a master's degree or a doctorate and and, and the next step, the job is right there. It's yours for the taking. And yet they hire from outside. Perhaps... You've got a university degree in one area. You've spent four to six years and you've studied and you've labored and you've yearned towards getting a job in that chosen field only to find out that you end up working in another that has nothing to do with that. God rarely works in straight lines. He rarely works according to our tidy uh, perceptions, our, our, our nice boxes of who God is and what he's supposed to do. He rarely conforms to our preconceived ideas. An unwavering faith, then, is a faith that's set on the purposes of a sovereign God, that trusts implicitly and indefatigably. It, it never rests. It, it never finds uh, uh, it, it, indefatibly. It, it, it never wavers. It trusts in God. That no matter what the details are, no matter what it may look like around us, God is in control. Every aspect. He's moving and directing all things so that we are exactly where he wants us to be. That's the example of Paul that we have here. And, And that should be a quality of our faith that we are striving for. An indefatigable faith in God. The third aspect of Paul's spirit is that he is a man who is willing to take the fight of the gospel wherever the Lord leads him. Uh, I don't know about you, there are times when I found myself in a place and I thought, I'm not going to speak up. I remember being uh, having a moment with the Lieutenant Governor of Canada at one point, many, many years ago, and I thought, what a wonderful thing, I'm able to share the gospel, and I chickened out. There are appropriate times and there are inappropriate times, but the reality is that Paul was always ready to take the battle, always ready to seize the opportunity to share Christ. And we see he's only there three days. He's come to Rome, he barely gets settled in, and within three days he's calling out the Jewish leaders and saying, I need to talk to you why I'm imprisoned. Now, the response of the Jewish leaders is a little bit confusing. We look at it and they say, you know, we've never heard of you, Paul. No one who's come from Judea has ever said anything bad about you. But is really that the case or not? Well, I I don't think it can be true. Not that Scripture's wrong, but it's giving us an understanding of what the hearts are of these Jewish leaders. You see, we do know historically that just a couple years before that, the Jews in, in Rome, their, their hatred, their friction against this little group of Christians that was rising and, and growing so much that Emperor Claudius actually had to kick out all of the Jews from Rome. He, he just said, "That's it. You're squabbling amongst yourself. You're all gone." And in their response to Paul, what does he call or what do they call this? teaching of paul he calls they call it a sect which means that yeah they understood at least the rudimentary basics of the difference of the gospel as opposed to the the jewish traditions they just wanted the romans to do something about it and not themselves they were just like the 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 leaders in in uh, in jerusalem they wanted to wash their hands and and wanted the romans to get rid of the problem for them Here's the thing, though, when he calls them back the second time, he took the opportunity to explain the gospel to them. Now, we read that word explain, and it doesn't really mean that much to us. But in its original context, it says, it indicates that Paul was clear. He was logical. He was painstaking in connecting all of these redemption threads uh, 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 in the Old Testament that brought the Messiah to the forefront and said, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And this is not a five-minute Bible study. Explained has his understanding. He was at it for hours, hours, answering their questions, going back, opening Scripture, reading, and explaining it to them. His desire was that when they left, not one of them would be in doubt as to who Jesus Christ claimed he was. He was the Messiah, the risen Lord. And and so he musters all of his persuasive powers, all of his intellect, all of his training. And he comes and he says, I want to tell you who Jesus Christ is. And it's probably the longest Bible study in recorded history. Now, even though he's chained and under house arrest, Paul refused to quit. He, he's locked. He's got that chain there. He's leading he, to, to a guard. But he doesn't see that as an impediment. He doesn't see that, that it should anyway stop him from preaching. And so he continues for at least two years, unashamedly, boldly, and with great freedom. Scripture tells us that some believed, not all. But but a few. But we also know from Philippians 4, for example, verse 22, that there were even people in the household of Caesar who were believers in Jesus Christ. So here we have Paul. He's chained to this guard. And yet his proclamation, his passion, his zeal, his taking time to explain all of these things brings spiritual fruit. He is tenacious in taking every opportunity for Christ. And the Lord blessed him. Now, having heard Paul's presentation, most of the Jews didn't believe, did they? Their hearts were hardened to the spiritual truth that Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is the Messiah. And that's why Paul actually quotes Isaiah 6 in verses 26 through 27. You see a long quote there. That comes from Isaiah. And he does that because he's equating their spiritual reality to what happened then. He says, just like that generation, your hearts, brothers and sisters, followers of, of the Lord, supposedly you have become hardened. You are unrepentant. You are defying the living Lord. It's, it's a stinging indictment. It's a slap in the face to, to everyone who would claim to be faithful uh, and following the Old Testament law. But Paul says, like them, you're being sidelined in God's purposes. And from our perspective, it's not simply a sideline of 480 years. We're talking sidelined. Unless you repent... And receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have no place in the kingdom of God. Now, the book of Acts, despite this, does not end on this harsh note. Because we were told that the Jews reject, the Gentiles will receive and rejoice. And in that, you know, all week when I was thinking about it, my thoughts just turned to John 10. And Jesus Christ talking about the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they will follow me. There is a promise that we'll get to in a minute. That as the... The, the subsequent or the, or the following through of the Acts uh, church, as a subsequent of the, the early church, Chinese gospel church, has a promise that as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who God has chosen will receive life. The book of Acts leaves off not with the gospel stopping in Rome, but continuing across the ancient empire and down even through the millennia. That's why it's left like that. We're not told whether Paul actually stood before Caesar and whether there's a court case, right? We know that after two years, he was released and then arrested later, and after that second arrest, then, he is, then he's, he's killed. But right now, he's going to be released after those two years. The reason why Luke does not include that is because this whole movement of the gospel has been leaving Jerusalem and flowing outwards to the ends of the earth. It does not stop in Rome. It continues on. And Paul falls into the background. It's just a man who is preaching Christ. It leads us to to understand, hopefully in a very real sense, that we are an extension of the early church. That is, Chinese Gospel Church this morning. Downtown, here in Chinatown, is the newest ripple on the pond of God's redemption that has started in Jerusalem and continues out. As the Gospel was proclaimed, generation after generation, faithfully, people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Churches sprung up, and the kingdom of God grew. We are the continuation of the Spirit's leading and empowerment from Acts, the most recent generation who must now take up the task of making disciples of all nations. Now, we've already seen what that means on a very personal level, to desire after an indomitable Spirit, a a Spirit marked by a grand vision of God, an unwavering faith in God, And a determination to press the battle for the gospel wherever God leads us. But what's the lesson we need to leave with this morning for us as a church, as a whole? Well, you remember way back at the beginning when we started? That none of us are more than ever one generation from becoming a relic. What is it about the early church that made it vibrant? That made it relevant? That made it effective. Well, I want to touch just very briefly on three things. First, there, there was an upward desire for worship. Acts chapter 2, and subsequently from then on, but we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. A- every aspect of who they were, how they lived their life when they came to faith in Christ, was now upwardly focused in worship. They went to the temple on a daily basis. They had fellowship meals together. They shared in communion. They submitted themselves to the teaching of God's uh, God's word. And they prayed together. Everything was God-centered and focused. And we see it time and time again as the gospel goes forth. it, It grabs hold. It takes root in all of these communities where it takes root the natural response of those who come to faith in Christ is to, first and foremost, worship. Their love and thankfulness to God for what He's done through Jesus Christ for them. In in opening their eyes to the reality of sin, in in finding in Christ the forgiveness for sin, Uh, of becoming a new spiritual creature, Uh, of having now the Holy Spirit indwell in them, this all meant that their lives were now primarily devoted towards worship. And that's what worship really is at its heart, isn't it? It's the soul's adulation of thankful praise to God. Worship is the soul's adulation of thankful praise to God. That's why worship is the primary and most critical characteristic of a church church. That, does not refu- or that refuses to become a relic of a bygone age, of a faith that no longer exists. A-, a church that has lost its natural compulsion to worship and to pray is a church that has lost its joy in their salvation. And, and just let me take a moment <laughs> and encourage you for next Friday night. It's going to be announced afterward. We're going to have a regular quarterly time of prayer. Prayer is an act of worship. And it should, it, it's a litmus test of our relationship with God. I encourage, if you haven't been to one in a while, please come. Even through Zoom, it is a wonderful experience to be together. So, for any and all of us who are rejoicing in God's goodness on a daily basis knowing his mercy knowing his grace this worship should be the natural outworking it it should be as natural as breathing to us saying thank you lord for what you have done and what you continue to do on a daily basis unfortunately as one pastor has famously put it most people worship their work work at their play and play at their worship (laughs) That seems to be too many of us these days during the week, we are so busy with our lives that we never slow down to be with God, and that means our daily experience with God—the very the 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 fuente, the the the, the, the uh, pardon? Thank you. <laughs> from from which our experience and our joy comes um, is lacking. Our daily experience with God means that. If we're lacking in that, our, our worship as we come here is going to be lacking as well. When, how can we expect to be able to, to go to work six days of the week, not worship God, and then come here and expect the Holy Spirit just to do all these miraculous things when we have not submitted ourselves to worship the rest of the time? And when we do come on Sundays, do we come in late do we come in and forget to quiet our heart before the lord do we sing half-heartedly even if we know the songs do we engage in corporate prayer when i was praying earlier my heart was engaged i i you probably heard it was your heart engaged as well And when the pastor gets up to speak, do we just kind of ease back into the pew and praise the Lord that it's over and we can go to lunch? If as we believe we are an extension of the early church, a church whose name should be written and history should be written in a chapter called Acts 29, and and if we don't want to be relegated to the slag heap of history, we need to be cautious and conscientious about the heart of worship. We can't expect, again, to come together here on Sunday and to forget God the rest of the week and expect God to meet us. A congregation that has lost touch with the living God will find its worship experience flat, flat, dull, uninspired, and worst of all, what? unglorifying to God. No matter what it may appear on the outside, you can walk in here and think, wow, this is great singing, we got great music, but if it is not authentic, coming from a heart of worship, saying, God is with me, I experience Him on a daily basis, it will ring hollow. And that's why to be an Acts 29 church, worship must be at the very front of who we are. We're not perfect. We never will be perfect. But do we desire more out of our worship, corporately, individually? Because if we don't, that's a sure sign that there is a sickness of sin, of complacency in our lives that we need to deal with. The second issue, very quickly, is an inward desire to care for the body of Christ. Now again, going right back to Acts chapter 2, we're told that they devoted themselves to fellowship. The the root of of meaning of this word is oneness. That is, they, they shared together this common identity, this common purpose of who they were in Christ. And it manifests itself very specifically in one way, in a giving and a caring of one another. So at the heart of fellowship is the giving of ourselves sacrificially to others. Caring for their physical needs, whether it is overt or or simply going over with a meal, knowing that someone isn't able to, to care for themselves that day. Caring for them spiritually, saying, when I talk to them, I want to encourage them in the Lord. I want them to be built up in their holy faith. That the foundation of fellowship, then, is a, a generous and a relentless giving of ourselves in real and tangible ways so that other brothers and sisters in Christ may prosper. It's a giving of ourself. And, and fellowship can be experienced maybe to some degree by simply sharing a coffee and having some words, but true fellowship. The fellowship that I have heard everyone here to some point say we desire more of, we crave, can only be experienced as we give ourselves sacrificially in service to one another. As we serve like Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a church that has a fellowship time, and they bring out the coffee and the little triangle sandwiches, and you sit and you chit-chat for a little bit, Well, that's not fellowship. And yet, the saddest part is, for a lot of those people, they've been duped into believing that that is fellowship, simply spending time together. But fellowship arises from sacrificial service for one another. So, worship is the primary and key characteristic of an Acts 29 church but fellowship is the inward now definition character serving each other selflessly as christ would and finally number three third characteristic is there is an outward desire to reach people for christ worship fellowship gospel sharing sharing the good news of jesus christ should be natural We have known the goodness of the Lord. We we should want to tell others. Our tongues should be unrestrained. Every opportunity, we want to engage people. Our our hearts should be bursting all the time. And yet are they? We love because, because Christ first loved us. And the same love that allows us to experience that fellowship with other believers is the same love that says, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ because your deep and most important need is to know Him. That's why a church that loses its vision and its passion for sharing the gospel is a church that will be left behind on the trash heap of history. Making disciples of all nations, it's a command. Go therefore and make disciples. But it's more than that. Let me tell you, it is the impulse of God to action our hearts to action our will, to do that which we now know is our responsibility to do. It's not to whip us and say, bad Christian, you're not doing this, doing this. It is the starter's gun at a race saying, go. And all too often we think, simply remind me again because I'm slow of heart. We should already be doing it. It's our natural response. So two things I want to leave you with this morning. That individually, we strive to be like Paul and cultivate an indomitable spirit. A spirit defined by a great vision for God, an unwavering faith in God, and a tenacity to carry the gospel fight forward. And as a church, to be in Acts 29's church, to upward, an upward compulsion to worship God, an inward desire to care for the people of God, and an outward need to reach others for Christ. Now, I hope over the past year, we've come to understand that the book of Acts isn't simply an inspired narrative of things that once were, but rather a guidebook of how we are to reach the nations for Christ. It's a picture for us of what God can do through men and women who are wholly committed to His purposes. Everywhere the gospel went, it took root. It created vibrant new communities. It transformed faith. It transformed uh, worlds. The book of Acts vividly exhibits for us what God-glorifying gospel proclamation is to be like. What it means to walk by faith and not by sight what a sure and indefatigable faith looks like in, in the face of a dying world. Acts is the picture of Christ's lordship and the power of God to transform whole communities. It's a book that we need to come back to time and time and time again to see how we are stacking up against those who have gone before us. Not to compare ourselves with them, but to take our spiritual pulse and to make sure that we're being pleasing to the Lord and relevant to the world. If we want to impact the world for Christ, we need to be an Acts 29 church.